You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. In connection with our sermon this morning, I would invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 14. We'll read the verses 19 through Acts 15, verse 4. We read in this account about the effect that the gospel had as it went out in the early days of the church. That effect that was quite often opposition and intimidation and oppression. So let's read together the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 14 beginning at verse 19. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derby. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came into Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From Italia, they sailed back to Antioch, where they had been committed to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. On arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they stayed there a long time with the disciples. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem and to see the apostles and elders with this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Our text this morning is from the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 27 through chapter 2, verse 5. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for Him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, and if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, 
being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, on Mother's Day, how do you go about choosing a text? Being in the book of Philippians, working through that, perhaps we could have gone to chapter 4. We could have chosen the text about Euodia and Syntyche. Two women in the church, perhaps they were mothers, who were being exhorted to unity. But that might have presented a bit of a negative picture on this Mother's Day morning. Rather, we should remember that text, but not in connection with Mother's Day, but because it indicates something about the struggle that's going on in the background to which Paul is addressing in our passage. There's some sort of disunity in the church. Something is threatening the unity of the church. And therefore, as Paul writes to the Philippians in our text this morning, he exhorts them to unity, to remain united. And of course, if Paul wanted to, he could have used the position of mother as a picture of unity-forming service. As that is what so many of you are really committed to in your lives as you work out your calling in the home as mothers. The noble woman of Proverbs 31, she stands really as a picture of unity. A woman whose life is first of all committed to service, and through service, she builds up unity with those around her and stability. Now this motherhood, true godly motherhood, the kind of with which God has blessed many of us, and which promotes unity both at home and in the church, is actually grounded in Jesus Christ. And so if Paul were speaking to the mothers here today, I'm sure he would point you to Jesus Christ as you work out your calling. And he would exhort you to unite yourself to Him in faith, and so to strengthen and support the unity of His church for the sake of the gospel. And that's what we will all do today. We'll consider our life in Christ and find that it is He who unites us together and that it is He who equips us for our life of service in His kingdom for the sake of His gospel. And I preached to you this morning under that theme that the Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippians to unity for the sake of the gospel. The Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippians to unity for the sake of the gospel. And he exhorts them to unity in Christ, in conflict, and in the congregation. So first then, the Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippians to unity in Christ for the sake of the gospel. Now, it's it's quite obvious from even a quick reading of our text this morning that the Apostle Paul is focused on the unity of the church. Chapter 1, verse 27 mentions it twice. Uh, I know that you will stand firm in one spirit 
contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. It mentions unity there. And again, in chapter 2, verse 2, we read about unity again by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. But what sort of unity, we need to ask ourselves, is the Apostle Paul talking about here? Is he talking about a unity that becomes the highest good for all believers so that nothing else really matters? Is it unity no matter what the cost, so that theological differences and arguments of all sorts become unimportant? We need to understand what sort of unity the Apostle Paul is encouraging the Philippians toward. Well, this unity is unity that is that finds its foundation in Jesus Christ. Even more, it finds its foundation in union with Christ. If we begin in chapter 2, verse 1, then this becomes clear. It says in chapter 2, verse 1, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, which in the original is simply in Christ, if you have any encouragement in Christ, so what does that in Christ mean? What does it mean to be united with Christ? Well, it means in the first place, and this is extremely important for all of us as believers, that you're united to Him in His perfect life, in His atoning death, and in His resurrection. When you're in Christ, all that He did as He walked on this earth, He did for you, on your behalf. Being united to Christ also means that you're united to Him by faith. The instrument of this unity is faith. The the hand or the arm of this unity is faith. It's by faith that you grab hold of Him and that He grabs hold of you. And this unity with Christ is is at the foundation of our Christian life. It's extremely important, and and that's why those words of Paul in in chapter 1 of Philippians that to live is Christ and to die is gain are so important. And those words in Galatians 2 verse 20 that for me, it's no longer I that lives, but Christ that lives in me. That is talking about our unity with Christ, but it's also present in in such simple statements as, Father, forgive me for my sins. It's present in such statements as, Father, look upon me in your grace. Deal kindly with me. The reason why our Heavenly Father can and does hear our prayers is not because of who we are, but it's because of who we are united to. We are united to our Lord and King, His Son, Jesus Christ. We're united to Him by faith. That's what union with Christ is. What He has done, He has done for you. And who He is, He becomes in you. What He has done, He has done for you. And who He is, He becomes in you. That is, this union forms the basis for our attitudes. It's it's out of our union with Christ that our, our whole life is lived. It's worked out in our actions. Notice that in chapter 2, verse 1. 
It says that being in Christ leads to encouragement. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, His love nurtures our comfort. His Spirit gives us fellowship and communion. And even though it's not put clearly there, I would argue that it's the same thing with tenderness and compassion. They're fruits of a life that is lived in Christ, in union with Him. And so we go back to the question asked at the beginning, where does our unity as believers come from? It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes from our unity with Him, first of all. It's not only based in Christ. The fact that we have one Lord, of course, means that we are united as one body and one church. But it also comes through our union with Him. Jesus Christ, as it were, as He works in us, prepares our hearts and our minds for unity. Notice how Paul puts that in in 2 verse 1. He says, if you have encouragement from being united with Christ, love, compassion, etc., then make my joy complete by being like-minded. If you're united to Jesus Christ, then work that out by being united to each other. Our unity as believers, our unity in the church, flows out of our union with Christ. It has to. It has to. You cannot skip that step. Otherwise, you won't have true unity. Your unity will be empty, and and really there will be no future for it. Any unity that we might have, even out of as a church that doesn't flow out of our relationship with Jesus Christ, is not unity that's going to last. It's not unity that's going to last in the face of conflict. It's not unity that's going to last as we work out our purpose as a congregation. It's not going to have any substance. It's just going to be a facade. But we also need to notice what sort of unity that we're talking about here. I don't think the Apostle Paul is is really dealing with doctrinal differences as he exhorts the Philippians to unity here. Those pose their own challenges to God's people, but that doesn't seem to be the case as Paul is writing to the Philippians at this point. He's going to talk about doctrine later on in chapter 3, but here Paul is speaking about having unity in carrying out our task as a church. Paul's talking about working together for the advance of the gospel. And this is, of course, what he's been focused on throughout the whole letter thus far. And that's going to continue to be his focus. The advance of the gospel is the calling of the church. That's our purpose in the world. That's the purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ in this world. And that is our purpose. And to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ, to do His work in the world, we must be united. And Paul, he doesn't even outline exactly what this would look like for the Corinthians. But I think as they would have experienced the difficulties of of trying to work together for the Lord's kingdom and and promoting His gospel in a sinful world, they would have known all too well what sort of obstacles to unity they faced. And we too know what sort of obstacles we face. And and the pressures and trials that threaten our unity as a church, don't we? As you try to work together for the advance of the gospel. 
You know the, the closeness and the unity that you need in order to work together in any kind of function in the church. Doesn't it so often happen that it's, it's where you have people working together in committees or on consistories or in the ladies' aid or wherever that there you start to get conflict and disunity. But you need closeness and unity in order to function as a church in the committees, as a consistory, as deacons, as you work together to, to, to give education to your children. You need this sort of unity in child rearing. You need this unity to carry out your purpose in the home if you're a mother. You need this kind of unity in relationships of all kind, otherwise it all falls apart. The advance of the gospel requires cooperation and closeness that can tax even the most patient and compliant of you. It's difficult to work together and to do these things in unity. So how do we do this? How do we achieve the unity that Jesus Christ requires of us in the church? Well, it is through living lives worthy of the gospel. Through living lives out of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could even translate that, live as good citizens of the gospel. Live according to the gospel that, that calls you all sinners out of your, your misery and unites you to Jesus Christ. Live according to that. Live as one in Jesus Christ. Follow the charter of the gospel. Trust in Christ together. Love God and love your neighbor. That's going to promote the kind of unity that we need in the church. And so in the rest of the text, we'll see how and why this unity is important in different contexts. We'll see why this unity is important in the face of conflict and how we can achieve this unity as we work out our purpose in the congregation. So then we go to our second point as the Apostle Paul exhorts the Philippians and us to unity in the face of conflict. If you look at verses 27 through 30, that's where the Apostle Paul is is talking about conflict And it becomes quite clear that the Philippians are facing some sort of conflict in their city. This was likely the sort of conflict that the Christians faced in in many cities as the gospel went out. It's recorded in the book of Acts and we read a part of that together. It seems that no sooner would the gospel go out in any city than the reaction of many would be to oppose it. People found the gospel offensive. And they found it threatening, and so they would react to it by persecuting and intimidating those who followed Christ. So we don't know exactly what the issue was, but it was probably that reaction to the gospel in the city of Philippi. But regardless of the issue, there was conflict. And in the face of conflict, unity is important. If you conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says, then I know that you will stand firm in one spirit and contend as one man for the faith of the gospel. 
as you face these pressures, Paul is saying, this intimidation and even persecution, Paul says, you need to fight. You need to be ready to fight as soon as you face these things, but not against those who are opposing you. No, you need to be ready to fight for the faith of the gospel. You need to be ready to fight to stand your ground in the truth and to continue to live out the gospel for which you're being persecuted. Unity in conflict is necessary for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel, for the sake of of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is necessary that we remain united, especially in the face of conflict. And when we understand that, then you can understand this somewhat strange and hard to understand phrase in, in verse 28 of our text, where Paul says that this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. Because the question is, well, what is this sign that, that's a sign that they'll both be destroyed and that you're going to be saved? Is, is it their unity? Is it their firm stance? What is the this referred to there? Well, I think what Paul is talking about with the word this, what he's referring to is the whole general situation that the Philippians find themselves in and really which any believers find themselves in when they stand up for and they advance the gospel. That is, it refers to both the believer's unity and to the opposition that they face as they, the opposition to the gospel. You see, the gospel has this twofold effect. It both unites believers in faith and it unites unbelievers in opposition to the gospel. That's why it's both a sign of their destruction and of the salvation for the Philippians, because that's the message of the gospel that they bring. The message of the gospel says that all who are united to Jesus Christ by faith will be saved. And all those who reject the message of Jesus Christ will be destroyed. So that's the sign to them. It's the gospel that speaks destruction to those who oppose it and salvation to those who embrace it. So those who oppose it, Paul says, will be destroyed. But until then, they're going to continue to oppose the gospel. And that means that until they are destroyed, believers are going to suffer. That's why it makes sense that believers often suffer for Christ and why the New Testament so often speaks about that. But even Paul, even the suffering, Paul says, is, is part of being united with Christ. Paul says in verse 29 that it has been granted, and that word could even be, it has been granted graciously to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for Him. The suffering is rooted in unity with Christ. Just as Jesus Christ has has taken upon Himself your sins and guilt and has borne the burden of God's wrath against sin, so we receive opposition and scorn from the world on Christ's behalf. The struggle against sin for which Jesus Christ has achieved the decisive victory on the cross is not over. 
And we continue to struggle against sin in this manner that he began, by suffering under it. And so you can understand why why unity is so important for us who confess and live out the gospel. Without being united with Christ, we wouldn't have the strength to persevere in the face of opposition. And without being united together, we cannot stand against our common enemies. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us to stand together for the sake of the gospel, that it might advance. The advance of the gospel is like the advance of an army. It doesn't go forward without being met with resistance. It doesn't go into enemy territory without inviting opposition and persecution and intimidation. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to stand together for the advance of the gospel. We don't need unity for the sake of unity. We aren't called to stick together so that we can maintain our distinctives. We aren't called just to stick together because that's what we're supposed to do. No, we need to be united because we have a greater purpose. And that purpose is the gospel. The gospel brings us together in Jesus Christ and we need to stay united to carry out our calling and purpose for Jesus Christ in this world. And we do that primarily, Christ's purpose is, is carried out primarily through the preaching of the gospel. And we all support that in many different ways, through outreach activities, through education, through our families, through relationships, through community involvement, through politics, through carrying out our office and calling in this world. You mothers are supporting the work of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ by providing a loving and supporting, a supportive and Christ-focused environment in your home. And as you offer your talents and gifts more broadly in the church and community at large, we advance the gospel of Jesus Christ by being united in the faith of the gospel. And we do that, Paul says, by being united to Christ. And that brings us to our last point. We need to be united in the face of conflict, and we need to be united in the congregation. If we want to present a united front in advancing the gospel, in the, advancing the gospel to an often hostile and always opposing world, then we have to be united. That much is clear. That is, if our united front is no more than a facade, if it's no more than a contrived, half-hearted, misdirected attempt at having some sort of unity, then we're actually going to have no unity at all. We need to understand what we are united in. And if we have no unity, then our witness to the world and our service to Jesus Christ will fall flat. But we ought not to despair. Let him who thinks that the church will certainly fail to be united, beware. Because our unity is not found in ourselves. It's found in Jesus Christ. It's a gift of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the one with whom we are united, remember? And He is the one who will make sure that we do not fail in our unity. That is, in fact, what Paul makes clear in these these if statements in chapter 2, verse 1. 
their if statements only rhetorically, because in a sense there's no if, and, or but about them. Look at what Paul says there. If you have encouragement from being united in Christ, if you have comfort from His love, if you have fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, if you have encouragement from being united with Christ, of course you do. Do you have, do you have comfort from Christ's love? Of course you do. That, and that's the point that Paul is making here. Paul knows that we have all these things in Jesus Christ. And that's why he's saying essentially, since you're united with Jesus Christ, then make my joy complete by being united in the congregation. He's answering the question, how do we achieve this unity? It's by being in Christ and by serving and following Jesus Christ together. By being, he says, like-minded. By being like-minded. Now this doesn't mean that we all have to think the same way and have the same opinions on every topic. Can you imagine if our ba- if our unity was based on all of us having the same opinions? That would be a, a lost cause. We would never be united. But what this like-mindedness has to do with is, is it's about majoring in the majors and minoring in the minors. It means emphasizing the things that really matter. Really, this having, this being like-minded is explained in what follows in verse 2. It means having the same sort of love, focusing on love. And having the same purpose, focusing on the same purpose, the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And having the same spirit of service to Jesus Christ as we do that. That's what being, that's the like-minded that we need in order to serve Christ. We don't need to think the same on every issue. But we absolutely have to be together on what matters. In love, in spirit, and in purpose. And this follows through in the, in verses three and four as well. How do you achieve unity? Well, the secret to this unity is the humble and selfless example of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was the eternal Word made flesh, and yet He never lorded it over others or asserted His His cosmic authority. He was King of the universe, but He never asserted that while on earth. Instead, He gave up what might have been important to Him in order to do the will of His heavenly Father. He thought not about himself on most occasions, but about other people. What do you think motivated our Lord to to preach and to teach and to heal as often as he did? It was a desire to see the kingdom of God impact and change and restore the lives of those around him. He wasn't focused on himself. He was focused on them, on loving them. He was progressing the gospel, you could say, in every contact that he made by looking out for the well-being of others. And that's what you do as well when you give up your selfish ambition and conceit and you consider others better than yourself. Now, I was once teaching a phys ed class and I was coaching the students about humility. 
And I cited this verse, but they became very confused, especially the ones who were, who were the better athletes. How can I think of someone else as better than me when I'm clearly faster than them? I beat them in every race, or I'm stronger than them, or I'm more coordinated. But to them, it didn't make any sense. Well, the Apostle Paul isn't telling us that we need to, to fool ourselves into thinking something that's not true. But rather, he's saying that you need to change your whole perspective on things. You might be a better athlete. You might be a better writer. You might be more academic. You might be a better business person. You might be, in many ways, a better mother in the home. But Christ calls us to begin with the perspective that Paul has in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15, where Paul says, God came into this world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. If I'm the worst sinner that I know, then I can think of others as better than myself. Then I can respect them and esteem them for who they are in Jesus Christ and treat them honorably. If I see who I am in Jesus Christ, someone who so much stands in need of His mercy and grace, then I can look at others as who they are in Jesus Christ, as people worthy of love and respect and honor. You help to build and strengthen unity in the church when you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have you not seen this carried out in the homes of many good and faithful mothers who really offer themselves as living sacrifices to Jesus Christ 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They're always looking after the needs of others. Isn't that true of so many mothers that we know? And when they do this, they exemplify for us the sort of service that we can offer to Jesus Christ for the unity of His church, and for the advancement of the gospel. And so, mothers, on this Mother's Day, remember that your work is first of all rooted in Jesus Christ. As you continue your good and lifelong service, do it from a heart of service to Him, and serve Him in all humility. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And for the rest of us as well, to those who have not been called to be mothers, for those who are not yet mothers, and those of us who, like me, are never going to be mothers, let's look beyond the good example given to us by our mothers, and let's look to Jesus Christ. He's both the source and the example of our humble service. And He is the goal as well. Following Him, let's be of one mind, of one spirit and one purpose as we serve the advance of Christ's gospel for His kingdom and for His glory. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.